If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I am honored to be talking with Jenny Mitchell. Jenny is an executive coach, speaker, and fundraising professional who helps not-for-profit leaders change the world one mission at a time. She has worked with hundreds of CEOs, executive directors, and high-profile board members all across Canada and elsewhere, and has helped her clients raise millions of dollars for their important missions. She believes that mindset and leadership skills play a key role in our ability to create change on the planet. Jenny is also host of the Underdog Leadership Podcast, which I love, and co-host of Your Next 50 Podcast, dedicated to helping we more mature women make our next 50 years the most abundant and impactful ever. Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management and online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tammy, for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, it's it's really our delight. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's just jump right in. Mm-hmm. So Jenny, you say that mindset and leadership skills are pivotal to creating change. Say more about what you mean by that. Yeah, you throw me an easy question, right? We'll get warmed up. Yeah, we'll we'll get you warmed up. So, um, you know, mindset has been a long journey for me. It's been uh, something I've slowly been unpacking. And watching mindset and leadership interplay has also been really fun. And I'll often have clients in my office when I'm working with them that'll say things like, Jenny, you're not going to believe this. Like, if I show up in the morning with this energy and enthusiasm, the whole team's like, yeah, we got energy and enthusiasm. And if I show up with looking like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh and the world's falling apart and we're never going to hit our goal, it's amazing. The team starts to react and compound on that. The world's falling apart. There's a recession coming. We're never going to hit our goal. So that interplay between mindset and leadership is not to be taken lightly. We are not talking about toxic positivity here. We're talking about owning your energy and your mindset as a leader so that you can bring the best out of your own teams. This is not woo-woo. This is documented research um, that reminds us that how we show up really matters. And when I was teaching way back when, Tammy, you know, teaching fundraising 101, I used to have this slide in the middle that everybody giggled at. So I thought, I think I'll share the slide. It said, The only thing you can control in your entire day 
is how you show up, mm. right? Because yes. you can't control that the toilets are going to overflow. You can't control that the kids are going to be X, Y, Z. You can't control if the board chair is going to throw a, a hissy fit or she's going to throw a hissy fit, whoever. The only thing you can control is how you react to these things. And um, I know you and I, Sideline, have had quite a few conversations about how we've learned and grown over the years but that journey to leadership and to owning your energy is incredibly important and fairly underappreciated in my experience. Yes, I completely agree with that. Our energy is contagious, whether, again, to your point, whether it's high energy, very yeah. positive, very possibility-based, or whether it's negative in nature. And I've even noticed for myself, especially earlier in my early leadership positions, I could come into a meeting hmm. and lead a tough conversation. And for me, it was about the issue. It's not about hmm. any one person on the team. So to come in and open a big can and talk about an issue and unpack it and brainstorm and push and have what I feel like were safe and brave conversations, but yet leave the room and others, like I'm on to the next thing, next. Mm -hmm. And others who are in that meeting are spinning. And so when you say we have to be accountable for our energy, or what I like to call like even the emotional wake that we can leave yeah, nice amongst, like amongst that. the I'm taking that one, Tammy. Oh, good. <laughs> feel free. We yeah. leave an emotional wake. And we have to be responsible for that. Hmm. Yeah, we have there's to. A, there's a radical responsibility that we're talking about mm -hmm. here, right? I often tell my clients, I also tell myself, Jenny, you need to want your dreams more than your drama. Of course, mm. that's a famous Jen Sincero quote. Um, but, you know, we often say we want to be successful. We often say we'd like to raise more money this year, but we're not willing to let go of our own personal drama to do so. You know, often we have our own fingerprints on our challenges. Quick story about executive coaching, because I'm, I'm an executive coach and I think I went into this program. I'm a fundraiser. Like, what can be harder than fundraising? I'm like, this is going to be a walk in the park. So I get into the program and I'm thinking, I'm ready to help everybody else. I'm going to be really good at this. And the first question they ask is, okay, how about we unpack your barriers and your challenges and your lens? I'm like, no, no, no. I don't have a lens. Like, I'm good. I don't want to go there. I'd like to talk about everybody else. And what that program really taught me was, you have to know your own biases and be 100% honest with yourself before you can go out and start judging or assuming about anybody else. And that experience, I feel so grateful for having had that training. It might be a little bit like unconscious bias training. That's not something I'm as familiar with, but just really being honest with how you're coming at things. Um, and it's just such a fantastic gift to have when you're in that meeting and, you know, there's what's going on, Tammy, on the surface, and there's what's actually at play underneath. And people are hurting. People are feeling attacked, depending on what story you have in your background. There's people that are feeling really uncomfortable and need to assert their dominance. This is kind of the playbook we have for fundraising, because for a lot of people, the word fundraising is just absolutely terrifying. So I got tired of teaching, here's how you do X. And then realizing that people couldn't do X and it wasn't because they didn't know how to do it, Tammy. It was because there were these, all these underlying core beliefs really holding them back. And that led me to a new space of executive coaching. That's really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, on top of all of those 
underlying issues that are unresolved that we bring meaning to whatever's happening or being said or the challenge at hand. We're under so much incredible pressure to hit a number, right? No money, no mission. And we are very mission-driven, purpose-driven, passionate people. I know if I don't hit my number, there will be children who don't get served. There will be scholarships that can't be awarded. There'll be fill in the blank, your mission. And so it just compounds and adds more energy to an already hot topic or hot issue. Yeah. And we're finally talking about it, right? I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but we're finally talking about the yoke of responsibility that we step up to the plate and knowingly take on. I remember what feeling like I was walking around the office with a target on my back. You know, one of the things that I, you have to learn in order to survive the kind of years we've survived in this business is you are more than your target. You are more than your last gift. You are more than the amount of money you raised last year, this year, or next year. You are somebody who contributes to a group of people, but you are not the beginning, middle, and end of your fundraising target. No matter who wants to tell you, that is your only purpose in the organization. Mm -hmm. You're right. We do need to embody and own that and to turn that same conversation toward the teams that we lead, right? Yes, they typically do have a number. If we're talking about our major gift officers, if we're talking about our director of annual fund, there's a number, whether it's a revenue number, I won't say or, and (laughs) a revenue number and a gift value upgrade percentage and a retention percentage, like all the numbers. But we need to let them know that they bring value even above that, right? And are valued as people. And that is not less than hitting the number. Let me explain that. You know, I think about my teenager who is navigating stress, has three things due, overwhelmed, paralysis, total paralysis, Tammy. And it's really interesting because I'm like, oh, interesting. I learned these skills. I'm unpacking them. And one of the things I often coach with her is take one thing. Let's start at the beginning. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And with clients, absolutely, we have a number. Now, in a perfect world, we have some kind of input into the decision of that number. I know some of you listening don't have that kind of autonomy, and I feel for you. We can take that offline. But if you at least have some autonomy into that decision, the money is the outcome of the actions and the intentions. The money actually follows, Tammy. So if you do the activities, if you engage with the right activities, the right people, the right relationships, the larger donor gets more time, more energy, more focus. Half of, I think, our work is to avoid the pitfalls of the quicksand and really stay focused on the most important parts. In my experience, if you can do that successfully and hold yourself accountable to those moves managements, and I mean that of ourselves, not of, I mean, I hate that term for donors. But if we can really focus on the steps that move the the activities forward, the byproduct is the money. And yes, there's going to be a sprint last three weeks, last month. Okay, fine. We we signed up for that. Let's not hide behind that. But those activities are things we can control. We cannot control whether the person's going to say yes or not. That is out of our control. So I often ask that, what can you control in this situation? 
and what can you not? Yeah, really powerful. I think even in as leaders, helping our staff members, our team members, guiding them through those conversations. So that question, what can I control? How can I move this forward in ways that I have access, ability, power to move things forward? Really helps in that moment, but it helps them when we're not there to support them. Totally. Yeah. They've got to make decisions every 9 a.m. of every weekday. What is most important here? Right? Absolutely. What's the most important? Let's kind of expand on that to the next Mm -hmm. level. I mean, certainly the pandemic has really shined a bright light on the issues of mental health and well-being in the face of pandemic, lots of change, unprecedented burnout, you know, this phenomenon of the great resignation and quiet quitting, like the list goes on and on. And I've even heard you describe yourself as a recovering (laughs) not-for-profit martyr, (laughs) of which I come from a long line of martyrs. I can relate. Share your thoughts, if you would, Jenny, about our sector's employee wellness challenges and the solutions that we have to build. Well, it's really funny that you pulled that particular one, Tammy, because I'm going to tell you a fun story about it. I submitted a proposal to a conference that was called Tales of a Recovering Not-for-Profit Martyr, and it was declined. Really? When I asked for feedback, the feedback was, we're afraid no one will come. We know this is an incredibly important topic, and everybody is craving this, but we are afraid people will not come, or worse, that they will go and they will see their boss there or their colleagues there. I'm not joking. This is a true story. Yeah, I believe you. So the next year I submitted the exact same presentation, but called it transformational leadership in six steps or less. And surprise, surprise, it was accepted. (laughs) Yes. Now, I will say this is quite a few years ago. So I think you're right. The pandemic has brought along some really major shifts in the way I think social justice has also prompted a lot of us to think about, you know, what are we doing in this sector? How does it matter to us? What's our role in conversations with people of means, which are for lots of great experts to speak about more so than me. I actually believe, I'm going to start here, that all professional development is actually personal development in disguise. And let me explain what I mean by that is The kinds of people that are attracted to not-for-profit are my kind of people. They have huge, massive hearts. They care deeply. Like you said, they will go to the nth degree. They will give you their left kidney. And personally, those are the kind of people I want to work with. Yes. On the flip side, all of those particular profiles are precisely what making working in the not-for-profit really, really difficult for these people. I'm of two minds, and I'm, I'm going to speak frankly, if I may, The first step for me is I think we have to take responsibility for our own activities and our own actions. So I see a lot of people kind of whitewashing things and saying, oh, it's going to get better. It'll be fine. You know, all you need is a couple of mental health days. It's not, if you took you three months to get into it, it's like a pregnancy, right? It takes nine months to birth the baby. (laughs) It's not like you're back to normal. And somehow we expect this of ourselves and our bosses expect us of it it of us. And so to me, one of the questions that the sector needs to ask is, what are the flags 
that we can learn to see as a collective that show us that there's a problem or a challenge. This doesn't happen in a, what's the word, a vacuum. You know, it's not like just using an example of my daughter. You know, if you look at the track record, it starts with a couple of missed attendance days. It starts with a couple of missed assignments. It starts in like little ways. Then it snowballs if it's if it's not, somebody doesn't reach out and say, hey, how are you doing? I think there's this huge pressure in our sector to perform. I think it's crazy unhealthy. I'm a re- so recovering martyr, but let me just talk about, I'm a recovering classical musician. <laughs> you talk about a world that is about high performance stakes and expectations and getting it right. I, yeah, I have perfection. Perfection. Thank you. And it is debilitating. And I know you asked me earlier if I would be comfortable sharing a, a personal story about mental health. And I am. And I am because it, because it was really, really hard. But I'm actually here to tell it to you because it taught me a lot. And it's the teaching me a lot part that I think is worth sharing. And ironically, that's where the underdog leadership name came from, Tammy. I, everybody has challenges, but it's the overcoming that I think is the really interesting part. So settle into your chairs, folks, listeners, you know, it's like, here we go. Here's Jenny's saga. Although, you know, even that has a bit of judgment to it. So let me just tell you a story about a woman who was desperate to grow her business, to take care of her family, to put a healthy meal on her plate, to keep the payment on the insurance on the cars. Why is that always so hard going? And who got a fantastic, really big opportunity to speak on a large stage, which put her into utter paralysis. Mm. Who am I to say something new? Who? What am I possibly going to say that these people don't already know? I'm a total fake. I'm a. So this went on about three months. And you know, Tammy, they say, please provide your slides by X date. You know how that goes, right? <laughs> yes, the deadline before the the deadline. And I'm watching this and I'm a performer. So that date is stuck in my mind. And I ended up having three full nights of insomnia, Mm. lying in bed. And I'm going to tell you the details because I don't think we talk about the details enough either. With my headphones on, trying like mad to meditate just so I could control my brain from going to all the what ifs. What if I have to cancel? What if this is going to ruin my career? All of this stuff. And because I'm a performer, I got up in the middle of the night, walked over to the screen, threw something onto a bunch of slides, mostly pictures, and submitted it. And the next morning, I walked up and I put my hand on my husband's shoulder. And I said, I think I need to see someone. Mm. And I walked into the doctor's office and I said, I've never asked for these before, but I think I need a sleeping pill. And that was the beginning of a long journey for me. And boy, oh boy, kudos to those mental health professionals out there, that doctor who said, tell me why. Let's understand this together. And I the stigma around asking for a sleeping pill, and I don't care what your sleep, what your thing is, whatever you're listening to, that the thing you had to ask for, Tammy, I'd love to hear yours. That was the bottom of the barrel for me. But I was more proud that I told my husband, to be honest. Because in the past, maybe I would have just sucked it up and probably just yelled at somebody. (laughs) Right. Continued the same behavior, which is internalizing all the fears and just continuing to spin with it and not sleep. And 
again, it just, it feeds itself. And I remember when I came out of it, I was like, okay, this is a wake up call that I don't want to be here again. So how do I set this up? How do I give myself grace that I don't, this is where I don't want to go back to. And I tell the anecdote of the story and I'm not, this is a totally true story. That presentation that I was able to give once I had the pieces together was very personal. Not like I didn't talk about mental health, but I talked about this journey and it was about a certain subject and it was so sincere and so honest. And it was one of the most best received presentations. And so I tell that because the judge was on me. It was me that was being so hard on myself. It wasn't anybody else. And that knowledge really fueled me into, you know, a quest for self-compassion. Many of you have a strong faith out there that leads you and helps you, guides you. I don't have that kind of background. So I've created the, you know, the the church of Jenny and self-compassion and really learning to rewire my brain and, and to show others how to reframe my brain and use my voice to help to be part of the solution. That was a long answer. Wow. Well, thank you, though. Thank you for being willing to share that with us and just being vulnerable and so authentic and, you know, to the point of you sharing it and even the example of that presentation, that big stage. Being authentic trumps being perfect every single time. By the way, for your listeners, my thing was the stage. Your thing might be presenting a really tough budget to your board of directors. Your thing might be saying to your husband, can you pick up my daughter at the XYZ? Your thing could be as small as saying, I'm not making dinner tonight. I'm really tired. So it doesn't matter how big the thing is. That one just happened to be for me. Those baby steps do matter. And you get a chance to, you know, have some choices in your life. I talk a lot about choice too, Tammy. Yeah, I love that. And I think that sometimes what, and again, those seemingly smaller asks, which in the moment, in the emotion of it can feel huge. Like, you know what? I've spent all week on this year-end fundraising appeal and I'm exhausted and I think we should take the family out tonight. Or I think we should call DoorDash or Grubhub or whomever. It helps, I think, in my experience, for me, it helps build the muscle that I can ask for what I need, right? Sometimes it's, I need someone else to fold the laundry. (laughs) And sometimes it's, I need a three-day weekend where we're not running, where there's not everyone stopping by, where it is just, I just want to read a book. I just want to write something, whatever it is for you. I just want to go in the garden. Yep. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, we live to these square expectations, right? We're supposed to have this and that. And like board reports supposed to be like that. Uh, Peel's supposed to be like that. You know, maybe it's my age. Sometimes it doesn't go like that. And it doesn't mean it's bad. I think I always thought if I didn't meet that bar, It was automatically bad. What if it's just different? Yes, absolutely. We do have a vision, expectations of the way things should be. And, you know, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Sometimes different turns out to be even better, and it's shocking. 
Yeah. And I think there's a real lesson for us in what, however that shows up in our lives, yeah. is that sometimes different is still pretty darn amazing. Yeah. And so just yeah. to be open. And, you know, I think when I get into a place where I feel overwhelmed or I'm not sure, like as a leader, yeah. often we feel like people expect us to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And what I have found as I've grown through my leadership uh journey, especially as an entrepreneur now, the answer for me is to ask a better question. Yeah. Right? Like don't don't know I don't have to know all the answers. Yeah. But I should ask questions that help us get to better answers together. That is so lovely. Our friends at Bloomering know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips. know if that comes with age but you know I almost think it's a superpower to be able to call out a spade a spade you know how many times you've been in a meeting with a donor and something weird's going on you don't know exactly what it is right the old me would have just tightened up her buns and just barreled through right <laughs> like well I'm supposed to ask for this gift today right yes. this is what I've set up to I, do. I need to check that list yeah, that list see I'm going to put a checkbox instead of taking the moment to say is it just me or would it be okay if I asked you, you know, how are you feeling? Or is there something on your mind? You know, we're not stupid. Us fundraisers, I love us. We're so intuitive. I think that's what the, the flip side of the challenge is because we do pick up on other people's energy and we pick up on vibes very quickly, you know, but that moment to say, I remember one time I had a donor who, well, actually was a prospect who told me all the reasons on a 40 minute phone call of why he thought the project was a terrible idea. Okay. And at the end, I thought, okay, Jenny, you've got to put something in this conversation that allows you to clarify something. Because at this point, I don't actually know. I know a lot of things, but I could have just run away and hidden. And it was like an inspired moment. I said, so I guess, Martin, this would be a terrible time to ask you for a gift. (laughs) And he said, well, no, not exactly. And I was like, oh my God, thank God I asked. Like transparency, call a spade a spade. We're, We're hiding. And then he proceeded to tell me that while his heart was in blah, 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 and he thought the project itself was a bad idea in principle, contrast of values, right? We often talk about that. He did love X, Y, and Z, and he would be willing to make a gift. The transparency that we have, if we come in with respect and no agenda, Tammy, and I'm just Jenny, I'm just Jenny, you know? That's all I am. I'm I'm the glue between the mission and you. And I, I don't really have an ego in this. Well, unless I choose to talk about putting my self-worth attached to how many gifts I close, which is a whole other story. But really, if you think of yourself as a conduit, there's sort of like a sage element to being a fundraiser. Um, but it requires us to ask tough questions, which requires us to be confident in who we are and what our role is. I couldn't agree more with that. I think that that, you know, that openness, that listening, that confidence, the questioning, being curious, and yes, sometimes courageous, like Martin, 
I guess this might not be the best time to ask you to make an investment in this. But here's the thing I've seen over many, many major gift asks, and you describe it perfectly there. You know, the thing about Martin, he cared enough to lean in. He knew everything about that project. He probably made a written list of all the reasons it wouldn't work. And if he didn't care about it, why would he have invested all that time? Because he doesn't have to tell you why he's not making a gift. And that wasn't his intention. His intention was to to have a dialogue, to have a conversation, to feel heard. His opinion about this gift mattered. He wanted you to know his opinion. That's exactly it. And, you know, in our busy world, we have very little time for people to be heard. And Zoom has only made it worse. You were asking about the sector and what can the sector do. I think there's a role for the associations to play in this, to create spaces for us to talk. I know that sharing one of my, we know that resilience is tied to a couple of things. One is autonomy. Uh, One is having a community or a network which you can share the load with. So in my programs, I often, I work in group coaching environments because it's really important to me that other women, or in my case, usually women, hear each other's stories and hear the challenges. It really normalizes it. A good glass of wine with girlfriends. It doesn't have to be wine if wine's not your thing. You know, going for tea, a good brisk walk. And I think there's a lot of bad behavior in the not-for-profit sector, the way some people are treated. And this, again, might be really politically incorrect, but I'm going to say it anyway. Responsibility always starts with you. People don't take away our power, Tammy. We give our power away. And over the years, I have been in situations where I have given away my power. I have abdicated and then complained about it afterwards. Mm. So I'm in a place where I've got 50 more years on this planet, hopefully, and I am going to choose to share my power. I'm in a place in my life where I can share widely. I think there are amazing individuals in our sector, but without the kind of supports and the kind of advocacy for our sector and for these people, we're going to lose those bright lights. And that's a bigger loss than any of us can imagine right now because they will leave the sector and we will be left with bits and pieces and the dregs and not enough people to do the work. And, you know, the work is far too important for that. All of your missions, all of you listening, I don't care if it's what it is, somebody cared enough to set up a charity, which is really hard to do, and found a bunch of people that believed it, that's worth fighting for. Also watching others and asking are you okay? I think that's a really under, are you okay? It's four letters, four words that can make a huge difference in somebody's life. Yes. And it's complex. To your point, we remember the Chronicle article, the the cover featured article 2019 that said 55% of fundraisers are thinking about moving on to another organization. And 30% of those who were surveyed said that they were thinking about leaving the profession altogether. And so when we think about all the pressures on them, when we think about, you know, really what you're describing is the confidence, like when they feel disempowered and yes, sitting where we are now, 20 plus years into a fundraising career, we can say, yes, I own my power. I am not giving away my power. But when we are younger in our careers, we don't have that confidence. And there's this power dynamic. We're typically working, you're nodding, nodding, nodding for those of you. (laughs) Like 
our donors were typically older, typically older men, typically older white men. Their power dynamics, we're talking about board members. You know, as a younger professional, it's really tough to own your power and to push back and to lean in and to draw those boundaries. So for those people out there that are younger, and I'll tell a quick story, you know, young teen fundraiser showed up in my first job, second job, and they told me they had a list of 400 alumni. I thought, this is great. You know, like, this is a wonderful place to start from. Like, well, it's an Excel spreadsheet of 400 names of students that have attended the program, of which their emails have changed 20 million times. You know what it's like, what you think you're going into and what actually happens. And I think there's a lot of that around fundraising, what people think fundraising is versus what it actually is. So to that young fundraiser, because I think you're right, there are so many power dynamics and that board member thinks every, there's two things people think they know about, marketing and fundraising, because everybody's done a little bit of both. Right. And the or they've attended, is, they've attended yeah. an event. Yes. Right. Are they almost everybody's been connected to marketing or fundraising? And so that young person, I think about myself, like what would I have said back then to myself? I would have said, remember setting up the very first annual appeal and like crickets coming back. Like these are epic fails. And I took them on my shoulder as my personal failures. But you know, my annual appeal letter at 29 learnings versus my annual appeal at 39. I think you have to find your group of people, find people to test things with, give yourself some grace that everything you touch isn't going to be perfect as much as you want it to be. I think we're often looking for the knock it out of the park. When they hire a consultant, they want it to be, we want to make 20% year over year. And I always say, show me a business that makes 20% year over year without any kind of investment on the, on the investment or expense side. Like that's ludicrous. And I think that's where those young people can get a bit of perspective. They're often working all on their own too. I feel for them because Mm -hmm. there's no point of reference. So finding similar organizations where you can create networks or share context. There's a lot of movement right now in mid-level fundraising because it's kind of a kind of a new frontier. I've been watching a lot of the research go around about it. I find it very exciting. So I think those are some really good advices. And I think these podcasts are really important in the learning, like hearing from different people, find voices that resonate with yours and go for it. I often joke that I've created my entire business to support my professional development junkie habit because (laughs) I'm constantly learning and because that's who I am. And because that's, I mean, I have three degrees. That's just kind of, but, but when I say that part of those three degrees is hiding a little bit behind the degree. As long as I have the degree, I must know what I'm talking about, Tammy, right? And sometimes I joke that taking your CFRE is so much less about doing it for the organization and so much more about doing it for yourself to prove to yourself that you actually know what you're talking about because we all know so much more than we give ourselves credit for. And I say that as I almost cringe when people call me an expert. I don't know how you feel about that. I'm like, I'm an expert in certain things, and I feel like I've gotten certain things figured out. And I just want everyone to know there's a lot of stuff out there I haven't figured out, and I am just so grateful to have people like you and other people in my network that I can call on and say, hey, how did you do X, Y, Z? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting? I feel like those people who create communities yeah. of peers, whether they're in other organizations in your community 
or other similar missions across the state or region or country or the world, the world's gotten very small, that those are the people that embrace an abundance mindset Mm -hmm. versus a scarcity mindset, right? Because there are Mm -hmm. some people who are scared. If I show my letter to them, they'll take the best parts of it and then they'll raise more money than I will. My donors will give to them. So scarcity, talk to us about, I know we're both so passionate about this topic, abundance versus scarcity. Give us your your point of view on this one. On a very simple level, those of you listening, do you believe in your heart of hearts that there are enough donors out there that care to fund fully fund your mission? That's just a baseline yes or no feeling. And if you said no, what would it take to shift your mindset? Because you're actually starting the process at a huge disadvantage. Because we know that visualization, so here's my research on it. There are three control groups. This is uh, research from Positive Intelligence. Three control groups, and it's about three groups. What's the best way to improve your three-point shot in basketball, which is kind of fun because I played basketball. First group does no practice, no visualization. Second group does practice, practice, practice. And the third group does no practice, only visualization. Now, which group do we think? is going to have the most success. Well, the group that did no practice did not improve. Surprise, surprise. The group that practiced three-point shots improved 24%. Good for them. Way to go. So happy for you. The group that only did visualization improved 23%. Incredible. Research people. Flip that to abundance and scarcity mindset. Henry Ford said, if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you are right. And so when we go out with these campaigns, and I know the numbers keep getting bigger, it is on us to figure out how we can truly believe that it's possible. I'm not talking about fake talk. I'm talking about trusting that our donors are going to meet us, that are going to rise to the challenge. I go out there thinking this is a crappy case, you know, like I wish they hadn't thrown me out. Like, come on, Tammy, right? You know what that feels like. That's energetically And I think, you know, we've had different languages for this abundance and scarcity mindset. It is infectious. You talked about that earlier. Anybody who does facilitation can watch it happen. Yes. Cultures have a smell to them. You walk into the organization. I know as a consultant, you do this too. You can smell it a mile away. I always joke. One of my test questions for new clients is, I'm curious, how much time do you spend on the expense side of your budget when you're planning versus how much time you spend on the revenue side of your budget. Because so often we spend the whole budgeting process talking about expenses, Tammy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really kind of ironic. And yet the only thing we can really control is the revenue piece. We can only really control our activities there. We can't get the hydro. I don't know about your shop, but the hydro just keeps going up. They just go, by the way, it's 6% more. How many executive directors right now are struggling with this inflation and this massive expenses changing on their budget and trying to figure out how to manage expectations. And if we go in with a big number, I know this sticker tape, Tammy, they call me the rainbows and unicorn lady when I do that, right? <laughs> You're just rainbows and unicorns. Show me the math. I want to see the math. And yes, there's math. Don't get me wrong. I'm not all about prospects, I'm figuring out what the capacity is. 
But can we also believe a little bit in, in miracles? Can we believe in the fact that, oh, I'm getting kind of, that people will meet us, that people yeah. will come with us on a journey if the journey is important enough. And I'm I'm getting a little emotional because I know your business is trans- fundraising transformed. And I know you feel this way too. I do. I can tell you a short story. Fundraising Transformed was created 14 years ago. And in 2012, one of my clients, the Children's Center in Detroit, had their chief philanthropy officer position open. And they said, won't you please just take this job, apply for this job? And I said, no, no, thank you. It would have to be such extraordinary circumstances for me to do that. And they said, like what? And I outlined, like, this is what. And they said, okay, let's drop an employee agreement and let's do that. And in the first three years, we tripled fundraising. And I remember the board meeting where I said, here's our vision. We're going to triple in three years. It's going to be backloaded where we've got to build some infrastructure. We've got to do some cleanup in the front end. And I remember board members looking at me like their heads popped up from the report and over their reader glasses, you know, that look, they were like, some of them were like, did I, did she just say what I thought she just said? And some of them were like, looked up and were nodding. Like, yes, it's time. Our mission is so incredible. It's just unbelievable that so little of our support comes from community. And so even staff, the first year, they're like, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. But by year two, it was like, yeah, this, this might be possible. Like, you know, you see the traction and by year three, it's like, look what we did. Yeah. (laughs) The vision at the top, that energy and belief with numbers and a plan, a data-informed plan, it works miracles. It works miracles. Mm -hmm. And a plan, a data-informed plan without the belief, it's like the people who, what was the analogy with the three-point shot? Like they just never practiced. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like never practicing. Yeah. Yeah. So all that to say, I totally agree with you. Mindset leadership, data-informed plan, bringing people along the journey. Wherever they're at, from they're wherever not they with are. you. They may not be with you to the to the final number, guys. Some or won't. That, some won't be there. I'll, some I'll will. Them. Yeah. And I so, think it, it requires us to, to tell these stories, Tammy. Like, remember one time when I, same thing. And I'm not talking about, like, like busting our butts and breaking our backs to hit that number. I'm talking about discipline, commitment to our activities, doubling down on what's working and analyzing. Like, I'm not talking about just going all out and killing ourselves because there's a big difference. I'll never forget when I brought the first round of fundraising to, I was volunteering and this is an organization with no history of giving whatsoever, none, and a very fractured past. That's often a common denominator. I brought the first 250,000. I think the goal was a million. And the treasurer, I'll never forget. He said, oh, that's really great, Jenny. You know, I'm really happy for you. Congratulations. But, you know, that was just low-hanging fruit. Like, how were you ever going to get to a million? And the old me would have been so cut and so hurt by that statement. I would have taken it home and cried for three days. And the new me was like, first of all, I was like, well, just watch me. (laughs) Second of all, was like, oh, he actually can't see it. It's compassion. He actually can't see this as possible. And he also believes his role on the board is to play the role of the, because we need the cautious people on the board. Yes. You see how I took it out of being about me? That comment could have cut me to the quick, 
but I have learned how to divert it and say, oh, I get it. He doesn't actually see it. Yeah. And by the way, he was a donor, just to be clear. He wasn't a curmudgeon or anything like I think we kind of label a lot of those people. He really cared. Uh, but it requires us, to your point about leadership and mindset, you can see it. Sometimes they can't see it, Tammy. Not yet. They can't see it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Really amazing. Really amazing. And I think that what you're describing, compassion, yes. assuming good intent. Yes. Yes. Like Hallelujah. That, that's how we bring people along. Yeah. We could talk. We could do all this for like day. Yeah. When's long. the next one? <laughs> Alas, we cannot. At the end of each episode, Jenny, I really love to ask a few rapid fire questions to provide just a little extra value for our listeners. So, are you ready? Uh, I just love this. I'm so ready. Where's my buzzer? Ding, ding. Next. All right. First question: What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Respect the donor. Mm, respect the donor. Love it. Number two, what book do you recommend to our audience and why? Oh, gosh. Okay. Can I give more than one? I love anything Kay Sprinkle Drace writes. Like, just like go run, read it. The energy she has is absolutely fantastic. But on a personal level, I also encourage people to read business books. I think it really is important. Um, one that I have right now on my desk that I'm enjoying is called um, Don't Split the Difference. And it's by Chris Voss, and it's all about how to negotiate. And that's another one I, I really love. I love the um, I love the business books. I think they give us insight to our donors and our and our boards as well. Yeah, so good. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess? Curiosity, drive, slash discipline, and vision. Mm, good stuff. Uh, what's your favorite fundraising tool? or application? I love, this isn't one, but I'm just going to say, I love Calendly. I love that people can book into my calendar without me having to be a part of it. And it's changed my life. So I'm saying that. Yeah. I love that. I think scheduling is the hardest thing I do. What's your favorite fundraising conference and why? Ooh. Okay. So as a good Canadian, I have to say AFP Congress in Toronto is still my favorite. It's where I cut my teeth. It's where I went for 10 years. But having had a first taste of AFP icon happening to be in Las Vegas, that's a close second. Yeah, so good. Knowing what you know about fundraising now, what advice would you give your younger self just starting out in the profession? You have way more time than you think, and you will figure it out. Mm. That should be like a, on a post-it note over everyone's workspace. Mm, yes. Thank you. So fun. So much wisdom and encouragement. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. If you want to learn more about Jenny, you'll find links to her website, her social handles, and to both of her podcasts in the show notes. We've also included links to the books that we've discussed today. Don't split the difference. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. And keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. 
Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag TheIntentionalFundraiser and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations create a results driven donor centric development plan strengthen donor relationships improve your donor retention rates and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com forward slash transformers. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.